Adoing. What is up, motherfucking fam? Before uh, before we get into it, I gotta tell a, a story about uh, the indignities of modern dating. So, uh, you know, we're all out here looking for the impossible, looking for um, the punk rock prom queen, the God-fearing good woman who knows how to drop it low, and uh, man makes plans and God laughs, and uh, trying to find this impossible thing, and uh, the world invents new ways to uh, <laughs> throw you on your ass. So a new thing that happened to me, this has happened to me before once long, long ago with like friends, where like a friend's texting you thinking they're texting another friend, and... Um, you know, they're saying something about you. But luckily, maybe like the two times in life that's happened to me, the thing that was being said was not particularly bad. But you know in such a situation, some shit could get said about you <laughs> that changes the relationship forever. And even if it's something that's like acceptable, you know, it's like we can all imagine like uh, if our friends are, are sort of talking about what's annoying about us with our other friends, it is simultaneously possible for it to be some shit that's totally in bounds, but also that you really would not want to hear. Or, you you know, you'd be, you'd know it was okay that they said it to another person who also loves you, but it'd be upsetting to know. So what happened to me was, this girl was texting me about me, thinking I was one of her friends, I guess. And so the first text was like, I don't know if I'm going to see this. <laughs> she had a, she said, I don't know if I'm going to see this white boy or this other guy. And, you know, so far, no harm, no foul. Uh, she hasn't said anything bad. Uh, and nothing really bad got said during this whole thing. It was just weird. But And I was like, hey, you're texting Evan. I don't know who you think you're texting. And she just texted the same thing again. And I, <laughs> so at that point, I said, this is white boy, question mark. And then uh, she made reference to... Uh, this other guy, she said something about another guy that was a little saucy, but I don't fully understand. And uh, then I started getting a little bit more aggro. <laughs> I was like, hey, you're texting me. You're texting Evan. You're texting white boy. And uh, at some point, all the texts go green. And so I know, oh, okay. Uh, I know, you know, because of my past wonderful interactions with women, I know that... Uh, when all the texts go green, you, you done got blocked, son. You're blocked. So, again, there was nothing particularly horrid that she said about me. It was like a little jarring. It's like, oh, she's talking about me and this other guy. Uh, and then she realizes what she's done. And rather than be like, oh, this is a little, um, this is a little miscommunication. I can probably recover from this. She just decided not nah, too embarrassing, too weird. Let's block his ass. Which, uh, you know, uh, whatever, <laughs> I guess, uh, it probably wasn't going to be, uh, true love in any event, but I thought that was pretty funny, um, pretty sitcom-y, you know, uh, we gotta be in on the cosmic joke, uh, you know, laugh at the, laugh with the universe or it's laughing at you, so that's, that's what we'll attempt to do here. Um, I've been watching a bunch of 
Taylor Sheridan stuff. Mainly, um, so Taylor Sheridan, I think, is involved in this Jeremy Renner show, uh, The Mayor of Kingstown, which is about a family in Michigan that they like, it's like a prison town and, and they they sort of negotiate between the gangs that run the prison and the cops and all this shit. And that's a Taylor Sheridan thing. I've also been watching Yellowstone, which is a Taylor Sheridan thing. And I really liked um, Hell or High Water, which I think is him. Um, he has like a type of Americana uh, so, sort of like fascination with toxic masculinity in Americana settings, you know, the West or like criminal underbellies of cities. They're like, I really like those settings and I really like that topic. And it's very like, I imagine that Sheridan would admit that like, these aren't really like realistic portrayals of any period of life, I don't think. They're almost like fairy tales, but the fairy tales are about like, outlaws or criminals so I guess maybe you would call that like a modern western or something um it's really funny too because I never liked Sons of Anarchy is is like that too which I think he was involved in but um I never got into Sons of Anarchy and it's funny too because Ron Perlman <laughs> I think plays like the uh the head of a uh like a white biker gang on that show and um he, he like, is like a big resistance queen on Twitter. <laughs> so that's always like a funny dichotomy. You can like turn on an old FX rerun and it's like, we gotta put these fucking beaners in their fucking place. And then you go on Twitter and Ron Perlman is like, I swear to God, this is the most racist president. You know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to get into that, but... I don't know why I didn't like that show. Oh, but the other thing he really likes to do, Taylor Sheridan, that is, is there's, like, weird family dynamics. Like, sort of the setup on Sons of Anarchy was, like, um, I think the son, the, like, heir apparent to take over the motorcycle gang, didn't really agree with the father's methods. And that's also an issue in... Uh, mayor of Kingstown, and it's also an issue on Yellowstone. Like, there's disagreements within the family about uh, how far you can take something to, like, revolve, resolve a, an issue in the family's interest. And what's interesting is they all play out the same way, and it's very, like, Shakespearean, which is, like, the younger generation is extremely judgmental of the older generation for how they got things done, and then as the younger generation assumes greater responsibility, they find that they are turned into just as, you know, they're made just as monstrous as the older generation and they understand the, the parents uh, that they previously were very judgmental of. And I think that's like, you know, as fairy tales go, that's like a sophisticated and important moral lesson, you know, the, the ways that I see it manifest in my life are much more benign. You know, I don't have that, uh, I don't have that dynamic in my family. But, like, the only obvious parallel I can think of, though, it's incredibly lame, is, like, you know, whenever you have a boss, you're like, I wouldn't need to be this much of a dickhead to motivate people. Uh, like, surely I'm just, like, cool and charming enough that I could get the same out of people without ever threatening them. You know, I would be the good, benevolent king. 
And then the moment you get power over people, you're managing other people, you're like, well, it's much easier to just like threaten them or make them afraid or whatever. So this is definitely like a human universal, you know, something you, you discover or whatever. Um, so I, I like it like thematically. But another thing I was thinking about with these shows is like, I think there's, I, and I don't know if this was ever true, but there's, there's something I wanted to bring up, uh, which is like on the shows, it's very clear that, uh, at least for men, like the reason they're on the earth or the reason that they have value to their community, to their biker gang, to their family is like their competency, like what they can do, uh, in some, in the context of these shows, you know, sometimes it's it's crime or, you know, killing people or hurting people, but other times it's just, like, being a cowboy. But the point is, like, they don't exist just to exist, and just by virtue of being a member of the family, they aren't loved or appreciated just for being members of the family. They have to bring something to the table. They have to apply effort uh, in service of the collective project, and if they don't do that, uh, they're sort of judged. And on some of these shows, you know, on Yellowstone, there's a character, Jamie, who I guess he actually did do some valuable lawyering for the family, but at the same time, um, he's like, he's not very competent at a number of things that are important to the family. And so he's not like thrown out of the family, but he's sort of like not loved in the same way as other members of the family. And I think that, again, I don't know if this was ever true, but I think especially for men, this is definitely a reactionary model, but I think it's a good model. It can be helpful to remind yourself. It's like men really like to feel useful. And you can form an identity by uh, being useful. And I think in our culture, it's it's hard to remember that at times. And to extend like the, the reactionary worldview, you would say that like women have less to prove in this regard because women bring life into the world. So it's like the utility of a woman uh, is like never in question really. Although of course this raises the question if, if somebody's infertile or, or can't bear children, you know, does that mean they're, they're worthless? I, I certainly wouldn't say that, but I sort of agree with, I agree with the, the setup of society where it's like a woman with the capacity to bear children sort of has inherent social worth. Whereas like a man is potentially violent and unreliable, can like steal resources. So like he sort of has to prove uh, you know, why he's valuable to this community. And in ancient times, maybe that would mean fighting, or even in these Western and in, in criminal environments, it might mean fighting. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that any of us should look at it like that. And I'm even pretty bad at, like, you know, on some of these shows, it's like the setup is just sort of like the kid who's, like, good at laying down barbed wire to make a fence to rein in the cattle... Uh, who's, like, competent at that, you know, he's more loved by the father than the one that just, like, doesn't know how to do that and has soft hands. And obviously, like, I don't know how to do that shit. I don't have many competent real-world skills. But I do think it's true, or I have found it to be true, that, like, if you're a man and you're sort of pursuing happiness or self-actualization just through the, like, formation of your own identity or something called happiness, or even, like, achievement for its own sake. I think none of these things make you feel good in the same way that, like, being useful to other people makes you feel good. And I think, 
it's weird because for some of us, the ways in which we're useful are maybe like not even typically masculine. Like I, I think the ways I'm best at that is sort of like listening to people, making people feel heard, making people feel cared about. Like maybe the nurturing aspect of that is more feminine, but I still think like, uh, again, as a man, whatever the, whatever the task is, whatever the work is, like, it's just gratifying to me to feel like, you know, it's just, it's, I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's like if I'm out at my mom's house, you know, here's an example over the holidays. It's like as I've gotten older, because, you know, I was kind of like a shitty, lazy teenager. As I've gotten older, I've tried to be better, though I'm definitely not the best at like, okay, let's not let her do all the cooking. Let's not let her do all the cleaning. Let's not let her do all the dishwashing. Uh, let's do some of that stuff. And my brother and his wife are very good at uh, picking up some of that slack. And so I try to do it too. But the thing that sucks is like, um, like this is such a dumb, funny example, but it's like my mom loads the dishwasher very specifically and has like a way she likes dishes washed. So like sometimes you'll, um, you'll do it a certain way and you'll like catch her later, like reloading the dishwasher because she doesn't like how you did it or something. Or, you know, you put things, I guess like a famous one is you put things away in the wrong place. But then if something happens, like if my mom's upset about something and I can sort of talk to her or like talk her through something, then like that feels like helping her with chores around the house feels good, but helping her with something she couldn't have done for herself feels way better. Because it's like, okay, it's good I'm here. Uh, Because like, you know, if I wasn't here, like, not only would she do the dishes, she'd do it better <laughs> than I would and be happier with it. But this other thing, this conversation we had that helped her with something, that's like, I'm bringing value here. And I think, like, everyone knows this and everybody wants to be valuable to the people in their life. But I think we don't enough think of it as, like, that's the main point that like that's actually how you're gonna I think people think like life is or at least in America we think life is some personal journey of self-discovery and if you're like a good person along the way helping other people uh that's just like bonus but I don't really think that I think um I think this proving use to a broader community is like the main thing that will make you um will make you feel like at peace with yourself and the world. It's just if you feel useful. Uh, like people that you care about can achieve things or, or be safe or be psychologically uh, in a good place because you're there, because you're assisting with things. I think that's kind of the the point. And definitely with my mom and my brother, you know, we don't live together at this point. But I think like we we have a very good little triangle relationship of of different kinds of support where like all three of our lives are sort of obviously better in a bunch of ways because of the other person's input and like you know that's definitely a big source of satisfaction for me and I assume and hope it is for them too but all all um all of this is sort of preamble for this this wacky thing I I wanted to bring up and you know it's always I was just complaining about another article to my friend and, you know, he, he was a journalist and he was saying to me, he's like, well, you know, the whole point of the article is that you get upset and click on it. And I was like, I know, I know. But sometimes they do seem reflective of, of broader attitudes and I just want to talk about like what that means. 
So is, there's this article in Vox called, um, and I guess I'm always complaining about Vox. Like if you track the articles that I complain complain about in here, it's probably like 90% Vox and fucking Ezra Klein, soft lips Ezra Klein had a uh, <laughs> had a real DSL Klein had a real um, thread that was pissing me off the other day. So this is my uh, long, lifelong unhealthy relation emotional relationship with um, Ezra Klein and Vox, but. So this article is by someone called Anna North. Uh, it's called, The World as We Know It Is Ending. Why Are We Still at Work? From the pandemic to climate change, Americans are still expected to work no matter what happens. Let's go into the first paragraph here. For a moment in early 2020, it seemed like we might get a break from capitalism. A novel coronavirus was sweeping the globe, and leaders and experts recommended that the U.S. pay millions of people to stay home until the immediate crisis was over. These people wouldn't work. They'd hunker down, take care of their families, and isolate themselves to keep everyone safe. With almost the whole economy on pause, the virus would stop spreading, and Americans could go back to normalcy with relatively little loss of life. Obviously, that didn't happen. Instead, white-collar workers shifted over to Zoom, often with kids in the background, and everybody else was forced to keep showing up their jobs even in the face of a deadly virus. Hundreds of thousands have died. Countless numbers descended into depression and burnout, and a grim new standard was set. Americans keep working even during the apocalypse. Now... The first thing I want to say here is, like, a lot of that I agree with, right? Like, obviously the economy is set up for wealthier people, people with Zoom jobs. Zoom jobs are fake. And, uh, you know, working class people were forced into go to dangerous situations at some point. But I think the causality here is really backwards. Like, if you've ever known depressed people or if you've ever been depressed, like, she's saying, like, we're all depressed and burnt out, like, let us take time off so we can focus on that and not our job. It's like, that's not how depression works. That's actually the, the exact opposite of how depression works. Like, if you're depressed, you have to keep going. Stopping, which is like, and I'll say from my own experience, like, that's really what it feels like you want to do. You want to um, quit the job, not talk to anybody, curl up in bed. And sometimes you will do that because your, your body and soul feel like that's the only thing they can do. But that is actually the worst thing for you. If you have something like a job, uh, it's good to keep doing it, or even just relationships with your managing. And I think this gets back to what I was trying to say, that like a sense of value, a sense of well-being comes from uh, showing up for people, helping people. Uh, and I think the, the unspoken, unpleasant thing in the background of this piece is that this woman knows her job doesn't matter to anyone that Vox doesn't make more money, there aren't, there isn't like an anxious public waiting for her articles who are very, she knows, she knows she could never do her job again and nothing would change. And so she's saying, why do I have to do this? Like, why do I have to, she knows it's fake in other words, and she's asking, why do I have to do the pantomime of work when the people that pay me and the people that read this or whatever, they all know nothing is lost. But the, the important thing to say is that like, one, that's not normal. And two, that's not capitalism. It's like most jobs for all of history were actually on important things. You know, if people don't go to work, there won't be enough food. There won't be enough, um, <laughs> there won't be enough, uh, materials to build homes. There won't be enough medicine, whatever. Like the economy is not optional. You don't do it when you're feeling the best. Like, survival on Earth is hard. Like, it, like it's only in the last 20 years that the economy is so disconnected. Some people's 
jobs are so disconnected from anything to do with survival that someone could even ask, like, I'm stressed out, why don't you just pause it for six months and nothing will happen? But, like, the phrase break from capitalism makes no fucking sense. Like, I think as we're seeing with some of the supply chain now and why I think you see the left get all mad about focus on the supply chain is, like, they want to think that capitalism is totally superfluous to human survival. But, like, it's all it's all related. You know, we, we don't have a fake economy where people... Uh, write Vox articles and other people buy Funko Pops and then there's a real economy where people slaughter cows and, and bring you food uh, and pharma companies make medicine. Like, no, it's one economy. There's the same pots of money in the whole thing. There's the same ships moving those different products around. So, like, you don't get to stop because life on Earth, for most people, not for a Vox writer, but for most people, it's like if one person drops out of the system other people lose shit they need and then they can't do what they need to do. And the thing that's also aggravating about this is like the dynamic I just described is also true in, you know, supposedly non-capitalist societies. Like I don't know why the American left and sometimes even the straight up communist admiring left acts as if non-capitalist societies like don't bring the same pathological intensity to work. Uh, that we do, in some cases, like, they don't bring the same intense pathological intensity to email jobs, but for the most part, email jobs don't exist in communist societies because they're not productive enough. So everyone is working in a factory or a field. So it's like, would... <laughs> so, like, in her little scenario where, like, we don't get a break from capitalism, it's like, well, if you were living in the Soviet Union and coronavirus happened, it's like you certainly wouldn't have gotten a break because there'd be a much higher chance you were working in a factory or a field, you know, that you had a job that was so, like the percentage of people with jobs integral to the economy was much higher in these less developed societies. But it's also important to say that, you know, I was just reading this Castro speech too. Uh, I can read some some portions of this maybe if it's, if it's interesting, but it's like their whole focus of these communist societies in the last century was industrial development so that quality of life could go up, so that workers could have reasonable wages. I mean, it didn't always work. I, I'm not trying to credit them uh, with pursuing their their vision effectively, but like work in a communist society for the average citizen is like much more intense uh, and brutal and physical than it is in our society. Now, maybe the point they would make is like, yes, during the industrialization phase, it's brutal, but then uh, once you have like enough, you know, uh, material supplies for housing or food or something, then like the people who want to be poets can piss off or whatever. But all you can say about that is really just that no communist society has ever gotten to a place where it was productive enough. It's like the only societies that are productive enough to have like a large bohemian class seem to be capitalist societies. And I understand that consistently in those capitalist societies, those bohemians admire socialist societies, but I don't really know why. And I don't know why they don't uh, understand this thing I'm getting at. It's like what this woman needs in my mind is not a break from her job. She needs a job where she feels useful. And like something working class people, even exposed to the dangers of coronavirus, may have that she doesn't have is a sense that their jobs uh, are really important to the society functioning. You know, if you talk to 
there's a few good truck driver accounts on Twitter, um, but there's lots of people who have like pivotal roles in the supply chain. And they definitely, even though their jobs aren't like, you know, they're not paid that great and they're not high status jobs in certain senses, you can tell they don't have the same kind of professional ennui uh, as some of these email job folks because I think there's just something very basic of like, if you drive people's food to the grocery store and you know that there aren't that many people who do that or there aren't that many people who do that as well as you and they're trying to replace you with robots but the robots kind of suck, like you know there's a lot of things you don't have in that job but you do have knowledge that what you're doing is important and that if you uh, got hit by lightning tomorrow, there like would be some trouble. You know, there would be families whose food purchases were disrupted or whatever, whereas like a lot of us have jobs where it's like no one would even ever know uh, <laughs> if we got hit by lightning. And for those of us who have that kind of job, you know, we just have to, we either have to find other jobs or we have to find other areas of life to feel useful. But again, I, I think this is, I think I was already headed in this direction politically, but coronavirus has just been profoundly disappointing to me in like, because I, cause I think, you know, I've, I've ranted and raved a lot about like what's important in society and how do you judge societies. But I, th I think like two pivotal things that I would look at. And, w and one of the reasons I, I sort of, uh, when I was traveling in the developing world or living in the developing world, did not feel like I was in cultures that were behind ours, at least not spiritually and psychologically, is that two of the most important ways you can measure society is how do they deal with death and what do they think makes up a good life? What do they think makes up a happy life? What do they pursue? And I think in terms of coronavirus, it's like we failed both of those so hard. It's like we have a totally pathological relationship with death where we're totally overrating risk and like completely shutting down society with like dubious dubious scientific justifications because people who don't even appear to like their lives are extremely afraid uh, that they're going to get a disease that's not that dangerous for them based on their age and their weight and everything, you know. And then also, like, the things that they find important, the things that they were pursuing in life, actually give them so little, like, spiritual sucker. Like, they're so um, emaciated spiritually or, or psychologically that it's like, they can't deal with this risk because, you know, as I say, like, <laughs> reading this article, this woman is depressed and she knows her life isn't important. And when something dangerous happens, if you're happy and you feel like your life is important, that really can, uh, can buttress you, can provide some balance as you're dealing with these existential questions. So it's just like the, the sort of American ethos of, like, you know, find your fortune, find yourself, self-define, uh... I think we're seeing that that's, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, people still want to come here. It's certainly still attractive to people, but what is that worldview, which is sort of the only thing that still unites us anymore, you know, like economic opportunity and complete freedom to be whatever kind of sexual pervert you want. Like that is the American creed at this point. And when crisis comes, a society organized around those principles, uh, you know, it acts the same way your least mature, most neurotic friend happens when the cops are breaking up a party or something dangerous happens. They're, they're unreliable. They're freaking out. They become an extra crisis unto themselves. And now you have to not only deal with the problem, but deal with them. 
and uh, nobody wants to live in a society like that.